to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome to episode 17 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, I will be continuing the Black Urbanist Speak Out series, and I will be interviewing Kemet Floyd, Kyra Williams, and Melissa Daniel, and we will be talking about Blacks in architecture. Hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for joining the Urban Planners Podcast. So my audience is predominantly urban planners, but I would love for you all to shed light on the field of architecture and the lack of black representation in the field. So as you know, many of my listeners may or may not know, blacks in architecture is close to non-existent. There's only, I believe it's 2% of blacks in architecture, registered architects specifically, and about 0.4% of that is black female. So there is a big lack of black representation in the field. So first off, I would like for you all to tell me your story and how you got into the architecture field. Sure. Okay. So my name is Melissa and I went into architecture because I grew up in a project and I thought that architecture was able to improve the conditions that I grew up in. I grew up in Washington, D.C., born and raised, and in high school, the high school I went to was called the School Without Walls, and the premise of that is that education was limitless. There's no walls that could constrain us. So through that, I was able to get an internship at a Black architecture firm, Deborah Pinnell, and they pretty much laid the foundation for me studying architecture. It wasn't until I got into college and I went to a PWI school that I realized how much of an anomaly Black architects really are. I've always had Black and Brown mentors, and only when I started working in the industry and, again, getting my parts of my education through a predominantly white institution that I realized that there's a problem. Okay, I'm Kyra. I didn't actually get into architecture until my undergraduate studies. I actually, I knew I wanted to do architecture for my master's, but I didn't really look into the field until I would say my junior year. So that's basically how I got into architecture, just by taking up a couple intro to architecture design courses. And that is how I got started. Well, my name is Kamet Floyd. Um, I got into architecture, I say uh, I was interested in about eighth grade when I took this aptitude test. And it really was just a blessing in disguise for visiting in a firm. It was a job shadow day. And I just liked drawing already. And then I just saw the impact it could do. And then I, I learned what it really was in college. I really didn't know until I got to college, honestly. So it really was just a matter of just circumstance. Cool. And I actually got into urban planning by way of architecture. Uh, my mom went to family for architecture. And growing up, I was homeschooled. 
and she taught me drafting. And I'm like, okay, I think I want to be an architect when I grow up. And then I started school and I missed the deadline to apply for architecture. And then lo and behold, I ended up getting into urban design and decided that I liked urban planning instead. So I actually got into urban planning by way of architecture. So all three of you guys have podcasts about architecture. Please speak on why you all decided to start your podcast. Well, my podcast is called Architecture is Political. And long story short, I realized that there wasn't a Black female talking about architecture. All the other podcasts that I've listened to that are architects have been white males. So, and the topics or and or the people that they have on there at, at one point just didn't I realized that I needed to create my own platform because the topics weren't being discussed and the people that I wanted to hear from were far from few from in between so my podcast again architecture is political and is basically about black and brown folks talking about architecture so our podcast, America's Hidden Gym, the podcast is actually a branch off from America's Hidden Gym, which was a blog that I started to celebrate and recognize the Black architect. If it wasn't for a commit reaching out to me to collab, to actually create the podcast, it wouldn't exist. So I'm thankful for him for even bringing up the idea to do it. Um, I'll go ahead and let commit, you know, finish the other half of that. Uh, yeah, so um, I saw America's Hidden Gym on uh, the platform. And I just saw the impact it was having. And I've had a situation uh, early in my professional career that I really just wanted to talk about. It really put me in a financial hole, just a hole mentally too. So and I, I felt like I wasn't the only one that went through that. And just seeing the inspiration America's Hidden Gym provided, I feel like that was a perfect outlet. So just like, like she said, I reached out to Kyra and yeah, we making things happen, dropping gems. Cool. So I, I think it is very cool that you guys started podcasts and I sort of started mine because there wasn't any consistent urban planning podcasts out there. And so my main goal has been to be consistent, to do it weekly and to stay the course. And of course, bring some black perspective into the whole thing as well. I mean, mine's not purely black perspective, but being that I am black is going to be predominantly a <laughs> black perspective. So architecture is a white male dominated field, of course. And in South Florida, I would say it's very Hispanic dominated. In architecture school, what was the demographics like in your classes? So architecture school was really challenging for me because I wasn't used to being the minority. So I actually went to three schools before I got my bachelor's. Two of those schools, again, were from private white institutions. And the last one was a historically black college. So my first school, right out of high school, first college, it was a horrible experience for me. I really felt like the only black woman in the room 100% of the time. So at the time, you have Chocolate City, and then you have the school I attended, and it was like a, it, picture this, you have a black sheet of paper, and then you have a white dot. And so every day I would enter into this white dot and it was, it was surreal. 
people again came from all over the United States and the only black and brown people were, they were from other countries. So it was just surreal. So I left that institution and attended another institution and I loved it. Like I loved that school. And I, even though technically it was kind of the same where the second school I attended, they were the projects like literally next door. But what made that experience different was the faculty. And they, they were more cultured. So Boston's a whole other dynamic. But I realized that the, the experience I had from the previous school really messed me up. And so it was that on top of financial aid that I had to leave. And I ended up graduating from historically Black college. So before the two of you start, I want to ask you how your experience was at a historically Black college. Because my mom went to FAMU, and I'm actually going to have her on my podcast one day to talk about her experiences. But even though she went to FAMU, she was surrounded by a lot of white people in a historically Black college. Most of her professors were white, and most of her classmates were white. There's a very few Black people, Black classmates. And I don't know if she had any Black professors. She may have. I'm not sure. But she dealt with a lot of racism. They didn't want her to finish. She was the first Black female to actually graduate with the five-year degree in architecture from FAMU. And a lot of her other classmates weren't able to even finish because of just what they dealt with and just them trying to kick everybody out. So how were your experiences going to HBCU for architecture? It was fine. It was like high school. Like I... The school was in a white neighborhood, and it's it's kind of the opposite. It was like a white sheet and a black dot. You entered that black dot, and that was it. it. It felt like high school again. Like, it felt comfortable. And I guess it's also because I don't know how FAMU, the area is. So outside of that school, is it predominantly white also? Like, the whole city or county or whatever it's in is that I've never been down there um I'm not 100% sure now my mom went to school back in the 80s early 80s I believe it may be different now um but that was what it was for her back then so I don't know if the architecture school still looks the same but I'm not really familiar with the demographics in Tallahassee But yeah, the reason why I decided not to go to HBCU is because of the stereotypes that when I graduate and they see I went to this school, they know it's an HBCU school and I didn't want to be a diversity hire. That was one. Second of all, um, dealing with a black school, you have drama. So I didn't want to go and they screw up my financial aid or they screw up my classes. I'm in the wrong dorm. Like, it's sad to say that's just how it is back then. I have no idea how it is now, but those are two reasons. But I went back, I picked that school because I didn't realize how much I needed to see black faces teaching me black things. I did not realize that because I thought I was good. I was like, I grew up, I know who I am. I didn't have to question anything. And then you, are put into this environment where you are questioned about everything and you you tend to assimilate and then you're like wait a minute like I remember there was a, a time when I didn't know 
there was an event that was happening. It was some event that happened in the black community and I didn't know about it. Like, it, and it was gone. Like there was talks, 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 and I didn't have any clue about it because I was so not into that world anymore. And it scared me. It was like, wait, how do I not know about this? Yeah, it's the culture. Like you just, that conversation that you would have that, you know, that head nod, I was losing it. And I was, I felt like I was losing part of myself. So when I, when I graduated from the HBCU school, even though I was done with architecture at that point, it like almost killed me, but I knew who I was as a human being. Awesome. So Kyra and Kemet, what is your story? Okay. In terms of my story, so I went to college for my bachelor's in architecture of in architectural engineering. I was one of two out of my department and one of seven to graduate. So I wasn't, I guess, up in arms or struggling with the simple fact of like being the only one in the classroom because I fought so long in engineering that I was like accustomed to it. But when I got to architecture, because I decided to stay to my university, I was the only one in my class and the only one in my graduate program and one of two out of all of the graduate programs. So for me, it was a culture shock. It was one of the most challenging experiences I had. I mean, I remember crying the first week over and over again, like, why did I pick this? Like, why did I decide to stay? Personally, the demographics, as you said, South Florida is filled with Hispanics and basically white people, especially where my university is located. So I didn't have the opportunity to experience the whole melting pot at, like in my classroom. I was really by myself. And I will say that, like I said before, it was one of the most challenging experiences that I had. But I mean, at the end of the day, when I graduated, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pursue architecture, but I'm glad that when I did graduate, I decided to find a mentor and keep striving to try to prove to myself that I can do it because there were plenty of days where I actually, this brings up one story um, that I said a couple you know, months back. I had one professor give me a grade. I'm going to say give me because that's what it was. He gave me a grade and I asked him like, so, hey, like, how did this happen? And he was like, oh, I didn't think you were trying hard enough. And that is where I really was like, architecture isn't necessarily meant for like just the average black person. So for someone to just ask, like for someone to say, I don't think you were trying hard enough. Yeah, I did everything all of my classmates did. Um, sometimes I was there before and after my classmates left or came. And to just like Melissa said, to just be questioned or constantly questioned about whether you belong there or if you're doing the right things, that was eye-opening. So that was my experience in a nutshell. Uh, my experience, um, I, it, definitely, uh, it definitely was predominantly white when I went to Kent State. I actually had the privilege of being a part of NOMAS kind of early in uh, school. So the Black people in the, in the architectural community, we at least kind of stuck together. So I never, I can't say I ever really felt alone, like we're still kind of friends today. 
which is a blessing, just having that entity and being a part of NOMAS. But I can say I definitely had struggled with getting support for NOMA from the faculty, like from the actual school overall. Uh, not to slander anything, but just keeping it real. Like we definitely wouldn't be given the equal opportunities as other organizations in the architecture program. So we really had to jump through hoops to just get funding for events and stuff like that. It definitely has progressed now, but it definitely needs to improve. So it's really just getting support from faculty. Honestly, we, we definitely supported each other. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't really share this, but honestly, when I was in school, I got turned off by architecture. And one of the reasons why I got turned off by it, I got my bachelor's in urban design and that included some architectural classes, not architectural design, but architecture course type classes. And I took a class and they messed up the scheduling and it was supposed to be urban design students in one in one section and architecture students in another section. It was called site planning and engineering. And when I took the class, I was being compared to design five students. And I didn't think that was fair <laughs> because first of all, I'm just urban design. So I, I didn't have all those years of design courses. And then on top of that, I did an assignment and I did the assignment correctly. And the teacher gave me, I think he gave me a C on it. And he told us we had to do, I'm like, I think it was elevations or some, something we had to do. I can't remember what it was specifically, but he said you could use balsa wood or you could use cardboard paper or cardboard. And I use cardboard and some, like there was like two architectures who they used the balsa wood and they got A's and I got a C. And I know they got an A because of the type of material was just better material and that's why they got the A. So I just didn't think that was really fair. So I got really turned off by architecture <laughs> and I said, I don't know if this is for me. I'll just stick with urban planning. So that is one of the reasons that I decided that I wasn't gonna do that. And I didn't know if I really could deal with the late nights either. So that was another thing. <laughs> okay, so in transitioning from school to the workforce, what challenges did, did you have with being black? I'll start it. All right, so I can say that I definitely had issues on both sides, black and white. I'll start with my most recent experience in there. So basically I worked at a predominantly white firm and the very first day of orientation, one guy made it, was trying to make a joke and he said, well, I guess we can't make any more black jokes right off the gate. And this, this was my second job that I had. So I was, I was like, wow, okay. Uh, I, I turned up a little bit. I was just thrown off, man. It was in a professional setting. I probably should have, you know, maybe handled the situation a little bit more maturely. Like you don't say stuff like that. This isn't a joke. Like this is the office and I don't play that shit. That was my most recent experience. And then I'll say with actually our own people, we just have a tendency to still, and this is all industries for real, just being money hungry, like not really valuing the youth and their skill set to provide professional development. Like that is a critical element that we need. Like we're not getting that and from our own people. And that's a major problem. Like how is it going to progress if we're not providing that for the people who are coming after us? It's, it, there needs to be a shift and it's so competitive we get the industry is competitive but it's way bigger than that like we get so caught up in the competition 
and gaining the, the cloud. And it's, it's about really providing inspiration and legacy. Like it's really just about sharing knowledge. Well, personally for me, the transition from my grad studies to the workforce, let me go ahead and start off with, I know I personally did not have the portfolio that everyone is like googly eyes over like the pretty renderings and all of that. I've never been the student to do that. Mind you, I, I love drawing and everything, but when it, when it comes to architecture, that is not my forte. So I won't forget that I went to our career fair and I went to quite a few firms, predominantly white, because that's all I saw. And I asked them like, okay, well, I'm interested in your firm. I, I don't have a strong portfolio, but I do know how to do construction documents, X, Y, Z. I know how to draft, essentially is what I told them. They were like, okay, well, just send us over your artwork. And I sent it, if I'm not mistaken, to nine firms. And I got an email back from maybe four of them saying, okay, well, we, unfortunately, we won't be able to, you know, accept you try again later on, either in the fall or later on in the summer. And then I didn't get a response from maybe five others. But to me, what I've realized is that when it comes to architecture, and maybe more so for what I've heard from other Black students, we don't get the critiques that we need or the assistance that we need to build a portfolio so that we can transition over. And I've noticed that that becomes an issue because I know my work ethic and I know what I can produce and I know what I can do, but because that doesn't transfer over to the way that you, you as in like a firm, because it doesn't transfer over the way that you may want it to, I'm losing out on the opportunity to be a part of your firm. I'm losing out on the opportunity to grow and to actually transfer over into the workplace. But when I graduated, I, I was done with architecture, like I said, and I actually Googled Black architects in my city. And I came across a directory of the Black architects. I forgot what their names were, but it's been going on for years. And I came across a couple Black architects here, and I asked them simply, I was like, I'm not looking for an internship. I'm looking for a mentor. Like, I really want to see if I can actually do this. Can you guide me? And the first, art, the first Black architect that I worked for, he gave me the opportunity to get some of my AXP hours with him. And that is how I transitioned into the workplace. So it wasn't easy. It's, it's never been easy. But I mean, I think that was just what I had to do or what I had to basically grind for that opportunity. Like I had to figure it out in order to get into architecture the way that maybe others would have easily walked into because of their portfolio. My experience, I remember I did a summer internship when I was in Boston and it was A&E firm, a local A&E firm. And they kept calling me the intern from last year. And I was the only woman. And the other woman that they kept calling me was an Asian woman. So I was like, it's not even about race. I guess it's about gender. So that was just weird. So I guess my experience, like I said before, similar to Kyra's, is that when I graduated, I was through with school. 
architecture and I went into a, a subcontractor. I worked for a subcontractor and I loved that job. My boss was Middle Eastern and it was like a rainbow of people. It was great. And then I missed architecture. And then my first official architecture job as a graduate, that was horrible. That was just horrible. I don't know if I was truly acclimated in the corporate environment or what, but I didn't get it. I didn't get their language at all. So then the recession happened and then I got into, I was attempting at my second job and I stayed there for like almost a long time. And I was the only black female there for a long time. There was another black male. He was there when I got there. And he graduated from the same HBCU school that, that I did. So it was good to have him there. And it was good to have the administrators, the admin ladies there. But without them, I don't know what I would have done. Like being the only one in a company, you won't have anybody to talk to. You don't have anyone to relate to. And that's when I started seeking out. That's when I started being heavily involved with NOMA. That's when I started to be heavily involved with AIA. The AIA portion was just to prove to them that I'm a leader. And with NOMA, it was just to have that black on black conversation, something that, you know, to talk to not only about the black experience, but just about architecture, just to have somebody there that's a colleague and a mentor. So yeah, it was, and being the only going to another firm and not being the only one. And, but however, to have, again, the managing principles or, you know, the, the people who make the business decisions, the hiring decisions to be all white. Like that's, it's kind of like, I always give this example of back in the day, the plantation was diverse. Yeah, you, you have all these black people working for you, but what? In the end, they're slaves, they're not free. So that's a bit extreme, but uh, <laughs> that's how I, I felt sometimes. Yeah, I mean, even though I'm not in architecture, I can relate it as it relates to being the only one. In my department, I was the only one for a long time. I've been working for the city for over seven years now, and I was really lonely. I mean, I was talking to all the Black people I saw. <laughs> there were other departments. I was talking to them to have a conversation. <laughs> and I mean, there was times where I just wanted to go to work for cities that were like predominantly Black, so I could just be in a Black city hall and just be around other Black people because, I mean, even though my department is somewhat diverse, it wasn't diverse to the point where there was like, substantial Blacks in the office. We have Hispanic, white, Jewish, Asian, but really no Blacks. So I can understand because that's basically why I started my whole platform is to bring more Blacks into playing because I was lonely, basically. So I can understand that. So moving right along. So a common misnomer, and I didn't actually find out about this until maybe like a few years ago, is that a person cannot consider themselves an architect unless they pass their architectural registration exam. And until then, they can only be considered architectural designer. Are there any other misnomers that people don't know about architecture? 
besides that we don't get paid enough it's a luxury type business like you have to have money to hire an architect i think it's more overall just a glamorous type thing even though hgtv does a horrible job in representing us like they don't acknowledge that they need an architect to do the majority of things that they show so you have the the face of it but then in order for you to knock down that wall or to do that addition you need a permit and the permit requires an architecture stamp so I think that just our existence and the need for us, that's part of that nomenclature you're talking about. I guess I can only really speak from just experience for real. I would say just a lot of it is a finesse, like, and it's a lot of like a lot of learning, like re learning your resources, knowing how to utilize those resources and then executing them just from like memory. Like eventually it becomes memory, like certain processes, you repeat the same things eventually, but a lot of it is kind of, but you're learning as you go type of thing. Like you always learning something new with this stuff. And that's even just early on. I personally would agree with what Melissa said in terms of like the necessity of an architect. And the reason I'm saying that is because I didn't realize until I got in the office that architects can sign off on engineering plans up to a certain extent for a certain footage of the building. And it can actually be the same way for an engineer up to a certain footage for the building. They can sign off on architectural plans. I didn't know how involved an architect is when it comes to engineering because they have to know basically the same things that I already knew. So I'm like, okay, so essentially you could do my job and I could do yours, but I'm the same person. But <laughs> So that's something I learned. Cool. Well, thank you guys for that. I learned a little bit today. So what are some of the ways that architecture can be made more inclusive and perceptible for Blacks? I personally think that it starts at an early age. I think we really have to expose people like early on so they at least know about it. I didn't know about architecture really until, I, I guess I can say eighth grade because I took the test, but I didn't know, I didn't really know until I got to college, like at all about really what it was, what it took and even what it can do or like what other ways it can inspire you to do other things like design period. So I really, it starts at an early age, like with uh, what Michael Ford is doing with the hip hop architecture camp. I think that's exactly the direction we need to be heading, like starting early. Like in the no mod STEM camps and stuff like that, it's really just about starting at an early age so they at least are somewhat exposed to it. I totally agree with you on that. I didn't really know that a lot of people didn't know about architecture because I did, because my mom went to architecture school. Um, so I was surprised to hear kids not even understand what that is. So I do agree with you as it relates to, you know, exposing them at an early age. I mean, that's what I do with, with my program exposing kids to urban planning because of course they don't know and urban planning is even less known than architecture a lot of people a lot of adults not kids specifically a lot of adults know what architecture is but a lot of adults don't know what urban planning is and they don't fully understand what that is so just educating and exposing i think is 
was definitely a key. Well, for me, I think it was kind of like you have to think of it as a career trajectory, right? Because you just in general is a five five year program or four plus two programs. So it was five or six years in college alone. And then you have to take this seven exams in order for you to become a licensed architect. So it's kind of like your kid, you find out about architecture and then high school, depending on the type of high school you have, you may or may not be able to gear yourself or prep yourself for college. And then you get in college, you have to be able to afford the college. And sometimes architecture school is more money than the college, than the general admissions of the college. So it's more money. And then you have the supplies that you have to pay for too. And then again, you're in school for five, six, seven years. So that's on top of that that you can afford. You're still in school. When you first start off as a freshman, you may have 150 people in your class, the school is designed to weed out the weak. So you may not even make it to graduation because of the rigorous whatever, the studio, whatever. And then you graduate and then you have to get a job because you have to get your AXP and then you have to fulfill that. You have to pay in card money to keep all that. And so then you have you work in the firm to get all those credits, you get the credits, and then you have to sit for the exam. You have to pay for seven separate exams in order for you to get licensed. So all that is a system to weed out the weak because they want as few architects as possible, in my opinion, so that they could get all the projects themselves. For me, my take on including more Blacks and African Americans, my take, it, it to me, it starts with mentoring. So it's in conjunction with what Komet said about exposure, and it's also in conjunction with Melissa, because it's a whole trajectory. To me, having a mentor, having someone that can guide you and direct you early on will, to me, change the whole game, ultimately, because if you have someone to tell you, hey, you need to look out here for these resources, hey, you need to start working on your drafting, or you need to start learning about different programs, or maybe you need to start working on certifications, like, while you're in high school, so that you'll be, you know, a better candidate when it comes time for you to apply for internships. So, to me, it's just a matter of having the guidance and the mentorship to have someone basically guide you along your trajectory to expose you to what you need to, that they've already went through. So that, that's my take. I totally agree with everybody, with, with, with everything you guys said. And Carl, with you mentioning the mentorship, I really believe, I think we need a mentor for whatever, any aspects of our lives, even personal aspects. I think that is very, very important to have that. So I totally agree. So Melissa, you briefly touched on the architectural exams. So can you guys speak on that? And what what is so difficult about the exams that is preventing so many Blacks from actually being able to pass? What are the systems that have been put in place 
to prevent licensed and registered architects? Well, someone told me, and I truly believe this, that it's the architecture exam is about resiliency. It's about not so much knowing the context, but it's like when you fail, you have to pick yourself back up and keep doing it again. It's like you have to, it's, it's an ego boost, ego killer. Like it just stabs you in the heart multiple times. And you have to, it's an endurance thing, right? So that's one. I know for me personally, and through therapy and everything, it's trauma. Like, and I don't know if it's trauma through failure. I don't know if it's trauma with like the stuff that I went through growing up. Like, I don't know exactly what it is or how to overcome that part. But I know for me and my own personal Black experience, it's, it's, it's been very difficult for me. And like I said earlier, it is designed to, you have to have the money. And, you know, sometimes your firm may not pay for you. There are scholarships out there. But again, you have to apply. You're competing with other people. Whoever's saddest story wins, that type of thing. And then again, like, if you fail, you have that money, you got to put it back in. Kyra or Camille, would you guys like to expound on that in here at all? I would just like to expound on what Melissa said about the resiliency, because I've heard that too many times, especially from Black architects that I've had the chance to speak with, where I don't want to say it, it has put a bad taste in my mouth, but as someone, like, to, to give you all a sense of my flaws, I have a fear of failure. So to hear that, hey, you may fail this exam, three times before you actually pass. Yes, that is something that is just like, oh my gosh, like no one wants to fail an exam multiple times and still have to worry about a rolling clock, possible um, the exams changing versions, and then you're having to retake all of those exams that you just passed. To me, like, like Melissa said, it's a way to weed people out and it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, is it really worth the time? Is it, is it worth the money? Is it, like, is it just really worth, like she said, the trauma? Like, who wants to, who wants to experience that? Like, it's kind of like architecture is like a chosen, like, disaster that we're all walking into. Like, we're choosing to put ourselves through this mental anguish. We're choosing to conform ourselves. We're choosing to you know, fight for a quote unquote seat at the table. Like we're choosing to do all of this and then to sit down for these exams to possibly fail where most people have failed. It's really, it's mind boggling. I mean, that's probably why I haven't personally started sitting down for my exams because I'm just like, I need to figure out how I need to mentally prepare myself before I start, you know, on this track. Like this isn't something I don't want to just let me go ahead and take practice management, for, for example, because everyone says that's the easiest one to take. That may be the hardest one for me. I don't know. But either way, it's something where you have to prepare yourself. And I think that that's something that our schools don't teach us. And this is where having a mentor comes in, because if your mentor isn't helping you 
prepare your mind and preparing you physically and mentally for this journey, you may end up, you know, crashing and burning. Uh, definitely the mental. Definitely takes perseverance and resilience. I say something that's definitely holding us back is something that Melissa mentioned where it's real. I feel like it is designed against us, especially like financially. We first we have to get the resources to even know the material. And that in itself is a, a treasure find for real. Like not a lot of resources are really out there and the right ones. The exam changes, like things things change, architecture changes, you know, like it's evolving. And I think that we're just not given the resources. And as far as money, like flat out, it, it's very expensive from start to finish. And that's something that I didn't know. I really had to show some ingenuity using my materials, man, like for real. Like, so it's just, it really is set up against us, especially for real. Because even say when we pass the exams, all right, we're ready to work. And they were like, well, we're looking for someone with more experience. Like it's a grind, man. It's, it really is perseverance. So. I can totally understand what, what, what all you guys are saying. I mean, at one point I was considering going to law school and that was a whole thing. And one thing that is common, what they'll say is that Black people typically have a lower testing score to entry in law school than whites. And it's not, of course, it's not because we're dumber. It's because we don't have the money and the resources to go buy the proper materials to prepare for the exam to get into law school so that's really money and resources is one of the biggest reasons why it's hard for us to progress and not to say that we can't despite despite that but if you don't have the money and the resources to put in you know proper materials for preparation for exams then that can mean maybe not getting a scholarship or that can mean you not be able to successful and you had to take the test multiple times but I can totally understand that. I'll also like to add to that that even in conjunction with the lack of resources I will say that I know for me and quite a few of my other friends like we don't test well. Sometimes I feel like this is where standardized tests comes in where that's also used as another systemic um, barrier to keep us out because if you if you don't test well then that means that you're not you're not shown or you're not reflecting where other people are, so to speak. So that becomes another issue. Whereas like you're highly competent, you can do the work, you you have the processing skills, but just because you can't show it on this, you know, particular exam, like the LSAT, like you were mentioning, then you can't get in which I think is also maybe one of the other reasons why I've noticed that for law schools, they're now accepting the GREs. Still another standardized um, test, but at the end of the day, different tests, they're made in different ways. So LSAS versus GREs, I mean, I've looked at the practice exams, they're, they look like totally two different monsters altogether, so. Okay, so as we wrap up, how can fellow Black people in the architecture field use their voice for the greater good? It's interesting because I'm like super active on Twitter, right? And I've noticed with the whole protesting and all that that's going on that a lot of female planners, I've been following more and more of you guys than anything and following all the webinars and like listening to you guys. And it's just been phenomenal because the things that you guys are talking about, about the built environment, about urbanism and how 
your white colleagues aren't listening to you. Like that's just been like it's been filling me with with sweetness and hopefulness. Architecture, architects, on the other hand, I can't find them. Like I know like Michael Ford and Brian Lee, those two guys. I know Tiffany, she's gonna say something. She's been saying stuff. Pascal's been saying stuff. But it hasn't been on that level that the black female urbanist has been saying. And it's not that they're not being loud enough. I don't know. Maybe they're not being loud enough. Maybe I'm not being loud enough. Like, and I think that's part of my podcast. I've been steering away from talking to people and expressing my voice, but I still feel like no one's hearing me. I don't know. I I just feel that we have, our voices are still being muzzled or we're just not being loud enough. I don't know. It could be either or. I agree, honestly. I agree with that. I definitely think, and then even like me just personally, like there are times when I'm kind of like chill and just silent about certain situations because I'm like, damn, I might not even just know what to say in the situation, you know? So I'm like, okay. But I definitely think it is time for us to just be more vocal, just in their face about it. Just let them know. It's it's only going to get better that way, personally. Like just totally, just being totally honest with them and Talking to like we can preach to ourselves, like our people all the time, but we also have to preach to the people who may not agree with what we're talking about. But it's really about reaching those minds because we can preach to people who believe what we're saying all day. But it's really about reaching those people who aren't on our side a little bit. Like it, it sucks to say that, but this industry is a business, you know what I mean? And we all need each other. Like every culture does need each other in order for this to actually be a thing that is abundant and really just provides the inspiration it needs to, in my opinion. Well, well, first off, Melissa, you have been saying a lot. Like, I, I've told you 50 million times that you are definitely my big sister in, in architecture because I look up to you, and I'm going to give you your kudos right there. Personally, I feel as though, I don't want to say like we have our figureheads, like you said, we have Mr. Michael Ford, we have Mr. Brian Lee, we have Miss Pascal, we have Miss Tiffany, Yes, they've been speaking. I've noticed, I've watched. But to me, there's so much more beyond just speaking. Like, we can speak all day. We can voice our concerns. We can say, you guys are not giving us jobs. Okay, well, within our own community, can we give our people our jobs? Like, I'm not, it's it's kind of like, instead of us trying to fight to create a greater good for everyone, this is where we need to start focusing in like in our community, in our home. Like for instance, I try not to say too much on AHG's page because I'm trying to keep it separate. I'm not trying to be a little too political. Um, but just simply just, you know, saying what I got to say, Juneteenth, you know, power to us. But it's more so like taking the action, like the way that Gigi has all of us on here taking the action so that other people can hear us. We, there may be someone who who's never heard of AHG or Arcus Poly, but, they, but they'll but um, they listen to Gigi. To me, I feel like it's less talk and more action. Like let's actually go out into our communities, 
let's do more career days, start exposing our kids. Let's start, you know, creating a pipeline between high school students and college students so that they have a mentor, like, you know, when they're connecting. Like, I know I had match day for my school and I got to, you know, follow somebody around. Let's start creating those pipelines within our communities. Let's start having our Black firms actually reach out to their alma maters and even the PWIs, because I feel like PWI students get lost in the sauce all the time. And they only, like, Black firms only go back to their HBCUs, where, not to be funny, but we needed, we needed a whole lot more than, than the average person would think. Let's start creating the pipelines instead of just having summer camps, you know, every summer, or just, you know, hopping on a call and saying, hey, how are you doing? Like, let's actually start being seen. And I think that that's the problem. Like, we're, yes, we're uncovering racism now. We're uncovering, you know, the systemic oppression that's going on in architecture and urban planning. We're doing that. People are waking up. I completely get it. But it's like you're ripping off a Band-Aid. They'll see it, but you still got to clean it. We need to actually like dig home, deal with ourselves. And then it's like, once we start taking care of ourselves, then we'll be able to expose other people as to how we did what we needed to do for us and start causing a greater good. That's to me, that's the way I see it. Like we need to dig home, dig, dig deep, like not just do this superficial statements, like dig deep into some of these high power firms, like dig deep, like look inside your firm. Like, do you have any black people on your leadership boards or on your committees, not just your CEO of diversity and inclusion. Like, do you have any Black people who are project architects that can mentor your your junior architects or some of the babies coming in? Like, I consider myself a baby still. You know, the babies coming in, trying to, like, learn and understand what's going on. So to me, it's just, like, dig deep, like, where you are, whether it's your firm, in your school, in your NOMA chapter. Like, take care of home, and then you'll be able to cause a greater good. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying, and especially the the point about us hiring our own. I think that's very, very important. I think that's just very important. I'll just say that. I'm not going to really have talk a whole lot about that, but yes, that's very important for us to do. So we need to be all intentional about that. Well, to piggyback off on that, I had a friend, shout out to Kayla Rodriguez, because I want to make her listen to this. Shout out to her. She said, it's less about diversity and inclusion and more about representation and integration. So people need to stop just trying to grab different races and different people and trying to bring them in and say, oh, we have a diverse firm. It's more than that. You need to start actually having representation across the board, not just, oh, we have our one Asian or we have our one Black. And then that makes us, you know, start going into saying, oh, we got some tokens in here. Like, you have to change the whole stereotype. You have to change the whole cyclo. Like, you got to, you know, reframe it and start integrating. Cool. Well, so I guess we're done for today, but can you guys please provide your social media platform so that people can connect with you and your website and where people can listen to your podcast? Okay, I'll go first. My name again is Melissa Daniel. You can catch me on Twitter at Melissa R. Daniel. It's also LinkedIn, Melissa Daniel. My handle for my podcast again is Architecture is Political. Twitter, Arch is Polly. 
Instagram, Arch is Polly, and Facebook, Arch is Polly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y. Uh, my, my, name, my name is Kemet, and my platform is, uh, I'm on IG uh, at KMT Creates. I just created my LLC. It's uh, at KMT and Associates LLC. Uh, and our podcast is at AHD The Podcast. And my name is Kyra Williams. I don't believe I gave my last name earlier. I can be found on LinkedIn under Kyra L. Williams. Kyra is K-Y-R-A-H. Um, America's Hidden Gym is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but Amer Facebook and Instagram is A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-H-I-D-D-E-N-G-E-M, and Twitter is A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-H-I-D-D-E-N-G. So it's just the E-M dropped off. And yeah, follow our podcast, A-H-G-T-H-E. P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Yeah, where are you guys didn't really mention where other people can find your podcast? Where can they listen? Oh, so Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Anchor, Google Podcasts. Pretty much, you can also ask Alexa, play Architectural's Political Podcast, and she will play it. And uh, also on the website. Arch is Polly. Well, AHG, the podcast can be found on Apple, Google, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket, po Pocket Cast, Radio Public, as well as Anchor and America's Hidden Gym dot WordPress dot com at the website under podcast. Awesome. So thank you guys for joining me today. And I hope you guys have a good night. Thanks for having us. You too. Thank, Thank you, you for Gigi. having us. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.